7. start with our summary statement for this psalm. Psalm 127 meditates on the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. And I'll go over that again. Psalm 127 meditates on the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. This psalm divides um, into two parts, verses 1 and 2, which speak of the house and the city, and verses 3 to 5, which speak of the sons. So go over that one more time. Verses 1 and 2, the house and city, Verses 3 through 5, the sons. All right, so we'll go to our observations. Uh, Psalm 127 was written by Solomon. You can see the superscription there, a song of degrees for Solomon. Uh, the superscription ascribes it to him. There, There is some scholarly debate as far as whether this uh, superscription means that it was written by Solomon or that it was written to or for Solomon. Um, when we look at the psalm, it's written unquestionably in a wisdom style. Um, it uses key terms that are related to the covenant with David and his descendants. And really, there's just no compelling reason to deny that Solomon was the author of the psalm. So I do think that we can be confident in that there's no musical direction that is given beyond the use of the song in the superscription there's no occasion that's given for the writing we don't know when uh, this psalm may have been written um, to categorize it is a psalm of ascent and so we are in this group of psalms that are the psalms of ascent uh, psalm 120 through psalm 134 now this particular psalm is the eighth out of the group of 15, um, which means it's right in the middle of this group. Um, and I would say as far as minor elements are concerned, the primary one there would be wisdom, uh, wisdom elements that are in the psalm. Now, Psalm 127 connects with the other psalms of ascent, and we've seen how uh, this group of psalms um, certainly goes together. Um, the middle psalm functions sort of like a hinge or a pivot for this group of psalms. So if you look at the seven psalms that precede this one, you can see that they have a mood that is more like lament. And there are strong themes of exile and longing and waiting. Um, and then if you look at the seven psalms that follow this psalm in, in this group, they are generally more positive and are, have themes of, of the joy of harvest um, going through them and, and more prominent. And we've talked about how there is 
certainly um, movement through this group of psalms from beginning to end, and so that really shouldn't surprise us in any way. This psalm functions also like the answer to the laments and the petitions that have gone before, and this psalm speaks to how that restoration is going to happen. So one of those themes that we've been um, tracking through the Psalms of Ascent is the, the theme of the restoration of Jerusalem in particular, the restoration, the gathering of, of Israel and the restoration of, of Israel and, and Jerusalem. And so how, how is that restoration going to happen or speaking somewhat to how that will come about or, or the timing of that? And so this psalm functions like an answer um, to those questions. Now, this psalm in particular connects um, with Psalm 122, um, and, and we'll see that as we go through the, the text a little bit, so particularly with the use of house and city that are, are echoed there. And it does have some external connections. So um, it does have external connections with Genesis 3 um, in, in reference to Adam and Eve and the curse that came upon them, and also has um, connections with 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the... Um, the chapter that um, gives us the, God's covenant um, with David there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, the poetic features of this psalm, um, we could say there is certainly some imagery, though not a lot of imagery. It's pretty straightforward as far as that goes. Uh, we have the imagery of the arrows in the hands of a warrior, and so that's, that's um, some imagery that's in this, um, in this psalm. The style of the psalm is certainly what we would call a, a wisdom psalm, and there's a couple of ways that, that you see this, and one is that it is, it's, it's layered. And so, uh, like in Proverbs, you have um, you know, brief statements that, that come one after another, and you don't really have larger units, so this would be a you know, a larger unit than what you typically have with just a, a proverb, which is just a two-line parallel statement, a, a proverb proper. But when you look at the proverbs, you find that they do have what I would call different levels of meaning. Um, there's oftentimes that you can read something on the surface, um, and you, the more, you know, that you dig into it, um, the more that you begin to to uncover, and so um, one of the th one of the aspects of wisdom literature that marks wisdom literature is the ability to pack a, a lot of meaning into you know very short, tight type of statements. So this psalm is like that. Um, you know, you could just glance at this psalm and you could just read, oh well, you know, this is just a psalm about. Uh, you know, being happy and having children. Um, but that's actually not the case. Now, another way that you can see um, the style of wisdom is that you look at the psalm and you read through it and then you read through it again and you, you begin to, to look at it, think on it, and you realize that while I wouldn't say that the psalm is general, I don't think it's general, but there's specificity that is not stated it is it is more implied so this is very much in, in the vein of wisdom type type literature um, so if you think about it um, wisdom wisdom speech uh, or wisdom writing can function like 
um, and, and may, this may or may not be helpful to you, but it can function like jargon. All right, so jargon is something that we typically associate with negativity. You know, you get uh, a letter from the government, and it goes on and on and on and says nothing, basically, except somehow you're going to owe them a lot of money. That's the only thing you know for sure, but whatever else all this is about, you don't know. Um, if you look at, um, well, a lot of times when you go to a doctor, and people all the time complain about, you know, he uses all these words, or, you know, she uses all these terms, and I don't know what that means. And they're speaking with jargon. Now, if there's another doctor there or, or you know, someone in the industry, so to, so to speak, what they're saying is actually a very effective means of communicating because they're saying a lot with a little. Um, and all types of industries and stuff have that kind of jargon, and that's a positive use of jargon because if you're talking to someone um, who, you know, essentially knows the field, understands what you're talking about, you can communicate a lot in very abbreviated type of, of statements, and a lot of that happens in work settings and whatever. So you can think about in some ways that, that wisdom can function like that, sort of like the positive aspects of jargon. It's, it's, almost, it's almost like a shorthand um, where a lot can be said in a little bit of space or few words. So, again, I, I see that style here in Psalm 127. So let's work our way through this psalm. We have five verses. Go ahead and read these. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So verse number one gives us the opening of the psalm, and the word for house that is used here is a dwelling, habitation. It's, it's a word that can be used to refer to the tabernacle or the temple, and it's used that way in Psalm 122 in verse number one. But it's a word that can also be used to refer to a family, and in particular a dynasty, which it is used to refer to the dynasty of David in Psalm 122 and verse number five. So you can already you can already see there's sort of there's sort of some layered meaning that is taking place just in the just in the opening phrase. Except the Lord build the house, and that well that sounds sort of generic, but you have to remember, um, you know, this psalm is not isolated and disconnected from everything else in Scripture, much less the Psalms of Ascent and and the Psalms as a whole, as well as the Old Testament and so on. So, the word for city then that is used is also used to refer to Jerusalem uh, in Psalm 122 and verse number 3. And there's a few places we've seen some Zion Psalms that refer to the city of God or the city of our Lord, uh, something like that. Sometimes you'll get Jerusalem referred to as the city of David, um, that sort of thing. So the Lord is building the house and the Lord's building the city. And the point is in this opening statement that unless God purposes and does this, Human efforts for it are in vain. Um, the restoration of Jerusalem and the restoration of the house of David. Now Solomon is obviously speaking prophetically here, and he's speaking of the, of the covenant particularly with David, of which we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Verse number 2 then gives us sort of this repetition of the, the vain, the vain enterprise. 
Um, so we get this continuing use of the, that term for vain or, or empty, uh, which is, um, interestingly, is the word in the Hebrew here is actually a synonym um, of the word that's translated vanity, um, I think 22 times or whatever it is there in Ecclesiastes. So it is, it is a very similar related term. Um, what, we, what we get here from verse number two, rising up early, sitting up late, supreme and even extreme human effort are futile to accomplish what God has not purposed or permitted. Now, the word for sorrow that is used, the bread of sorrows, this word for sorrow or pain is used in Genesis 3.16 to describe the curse on the woman, how she's going to bring forth children in sorrow. It's also used, the, the, the root of it is used in Genesis 3.17 to describe the curse on man, how he's going to eat bread of, of sorrow all the days of his life. So what this does is, is it connects both birthing children and daily toil to eat bread there in Genesis 3 and here in this psalm. Now, the last phrase is a little bit difficult, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. And my understanding is that the Hebrew there is just a little bit difficult, a little bit obscure. Um, and so the, the, the grammar of it could mean that he gives sleep. Sleep is what he gives to the beloved. Or it could mean that he gives to his beloved in sleep. In other words, while they're sleeping. And so... Um, that certainly would fit more with the context of the psalm because it would, it would show that there's, there's a supreme lack of effort on the part of the person to bring about what God is doing. Um, now, the word for beloved is a word that is used of the Messiah. Um, it's also used of those that are in covenant with Yahweh, and we've seen this in the heading of Psalm 45. We've seen it in Psalm 60 in verse 5, Psalm 108 in verse number 16. Now, verse number 3 then speaks of reward and sort of makes a turn in this. We're leaving the city and the house, and we're making a turn here. Um, and the, the reference to children, now the word for children um, in the Hebrew, it, it is masculine plural. And if someone wanted to say sons explicitly as, as distinct from daughters, then this is the word they would use. If someone wanted to say sons and daughters collectively, children, well, this is also the word that they would use. So we don't know for certain which it is unless the context indicates that to us in which case the context suggests that sons are meant in particular in this passage. And we see that as we, as we go on through uh, there, the comparison to, to arrows and, and um, speaking or, or um, arranging with enemies in the gate and, and so on. So, so sons in the context are particularly meant, and remember this is related to the promise to David and the continuation of his line, which we get reference to in Psalm 132, verses 11 to 13 as well. Now the word for heritage that is used here is the word for inheritance, and it is used mainly in three ways. It's, and that's both in the Psalms as well as in the Old Testament. Um, one way that it is used is to refer to the nations of the world as the inheritance of Yahweh's anointed son king. That's in uh, Psalm 2 and verse number 8. 
The next way that it is used is to refer to the nation of Israel, those descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as God's special inheritance. And that's in Psalm 33 and verse number 12. And in the third way that it's used, which is actually the most common way that it's used throughout the Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament, is to in reference to the land that was promised to Abraham as the inheritance of the nation from him. That's in chapter 30, or Psalm 37 and verse number 18. So how's it used here? Well, here it's actually used to refer to the sons as inheritance and reward, and this would particularly then be to David, again, with the connections with God's covenant with David. And there's two reasons why that it, that it would be taken this way. One is because sons are necessary in order to keep the generation of Israel going. So for there to continue to be a people of Israel, there has to be the birth of sons and daughters, yes, but in particular sons to continue those lines. And secondly, sons are absolutely necessary to be born to David in order to continue his line that culminates in the Messiah. So if, if David wasn't the Messiah, he's going to uh, you know, be laid to rest his fathers, and Solomon wasn't it, and then um, Solomon's son Rehoboam wasn't it, and on and on and on and on you go, the next one isn't it, and the next one isn't it. Well, sons are going to have to continue to be born to David in order for God's covenant with David to be fulfilled. That line cannot stop. Now, one of the places where we see just how crucial that this is and how important that it is, is in the account of Hezekiah. So in Isaiah chapter 38, there in verses 1 to 3 in particular, um, Hezekiah, as you will recall, um, was told by the Lord that he was going to die. He wasn't going to live. And Hezekiah was very distraught about this, not just because he was going to die, but because he was childless. If Hezekiah dies childless, the line ends. That royal line from David that was going through Hezekiah ends right there. So he prayed, of course, and he was given 15 more years. Now, we learned that after this, he married uh, Hephzibah, which uh, rabbinical tradition of the Jews says that that was Isaiah's daughter, but there's, we, we have nothing to, to confirm that with. But we are told that he married a woman named Hephzibah and had Manasseh. And, had, and that was three years after he had been given those additional 15 years. So Manasseh was 12 years old when Hezekiah died. That's 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse number 1. So again, what was all this about? Was it about that, well, Hezekiah was just particularly pious or Hezekiah used the right formula in his approach to God or he fasted or he did this or he did that? No, he, he prayed according to the purpose of God. So God's promise to David cannot be fulfilled if the line ends. So sons are absolutely essential. David needs sons to be born to him to get to the Messiah, which, of course, uh, we recently looked at that genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, how that that is exactly what happened. So that's what's being reflected on here in this psalm. Now, verses 4 and 5 give us the conclusion of this psalm. This is where we get some of this imagery, um, the arrows in the hands. These sons uh, that are born to David are, are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. In other words, 
weapons. And the word for warrior uh, is um, the gabor or the gaborim. Um, it occurs numerous times in the Old Testament. It occurs a number of times in the Psalms and, occur, and occurs in reference to the Messiah, the, the divine warrior. Psalm 24, verse 8, Psalm 45, verse 3, Psalm 78, verse 65, Psalm 89, verse number 19. And this man will be blessed. He will speak. And the word for speak can also have the idea of arranging. He will arrange with his enemies in the gates. And presumably this means that he will be arranging um, peace with his, with his enemies because he will triumph. All right, so let's go to the interpretation. Well, Psalm 127 primarily teaches that restoration only comes when God does it. Now remember, all the way back, starting with Moses in, in the Pentateuch, it was prophesied more than once that Israel is going to go into exile and that in their future, they're going to be gathered and restored. That was before they ever even entered the land to begin with. That was prophesied numerous times in the Pentateuch. So this idea of exile and restoration um, was there before they ever even entered the land, before David was even born, before David or Solomon ever reigned over Israel. So Psalm 127 is teaching that that restoration, that future time that has been looked forward to for so long, only comes when God does it. So again, think about all the laments, all the petitions, all the prayers, all the longings for the coming of the Messiah, for the end of the exile, for the restoration of Israel and Zion. And the point is that they cannot hurry the coming of the Messiah. They, they can't hurry the rest of these promises that are contingent upon his coming. They can't make it happen. They can't cause it to happen. It's just like what Jesus told his apostles. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That question right there has been asked by generations for millennia. Will, you, will it be now? Will now be the time? Here's what Jesus said. He said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. And this psalm is reinforcing that point exactly. So the sad news, as it were, if you think about it that way, is that you just have to keep waiting. The answer that you most dreaded as a child, and probably some of us as adults aren't doing very good with that answer either, but you just have to keep waiting. And that's the answer of this psalm. Now, the messianic hope of this psalm is seen through these connections with the Davidic covenant. So, there in 2 Samuel 7 uh, is where we have this, this covenant um, given to David. And remember what's going on. David wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build God a house, but God would not permit David to build him a house, but rather God said he would build David 
a house. Now you see these, these are the same terms that are, that are used here. And again, there's a, these words are being played on. They're being played on here and they were being played on there. God, David wants to build God a house, stone, wood, what have you, a structure. And God says to David, no, 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 I'm going to build you a house. Not a stone and wood structure, but a dynasty, a line, a royal line that is going to culminate in the son of David who builds God a house. And he's not talking about Solomon in that particular instance, though we know Solomon did go on to build the temple. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this, that he was, that Jesus, the Messiah, was the one that builds the house. In other words, he's the one that's going to gather and restore um, the nation of Israel. So this is, this is the promise. You've got this play on these words. And again, these terms are, are used here, and this, this concept is, is used here, and, and the expression that unless the Lord does it, unless the Lord does it, David couldn't do it, Solomon couldn't do it, Rehoboam couldn't do it, Hezekiah couldn't do it, no, no, no one could do it, no one could cause it to come about. The Lord has to do it. So in 2 Samuel 7, David is promised, you're going to die and you're going to be laid to rest of your fathers, but your seed after you, I'm going to raise up to sit on your throne and to rule forever over the nation of Israel when I plant them in their land and give them rest from all their enemies. All of those things promised to David. Now, we've already noted some of the messianic references here in this psalm, but you look back at verse 3, um, and it, it, it speaks of, wait a minute, it's, uh, let's see, no, no, it's not verse 3, it's into verse 2 actually about him, again, that phrase, him giving his beloved sleep. And again, I do think contextually we have good reason to take it to say he gives to his beloved in sleep. Well, it's no surprise that the Messiah is referred to in those terms the beloved and uh, the, the psalm 45 is the song of the beloved that we read there in the superscription and in, in isaiah's prophecies referred to as as the the beloved well, what does that remind us of well it reminds us of psalm 110 psalm 110 verses 1 to 2 in particular where the father tells the son priest king to sit down sit at my right hand until i make your enemies, your footstool, and then you will reign over them, which does connect the last two verses of this psalm as well. So the answer in this psalm, or the answer to the problem, ultimately the problem of, for Israel, which is their, um, their gathering, the end of the exile, their gathering, their restoration, their, their, their Messiah, well, the answer that we see in this psalm that's given to that problem for them is the birth of sons. And it's actually been the answer that, all, that started all the way back into Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. When the woman was promised a male child, a seed, that would crush the head of the serpent. David was promised a son who would reign forever on his throne. 2 Samuel chapter 7, particularly in verses 12 to 14. So obviously the, the answer is this birth of sons and it is the inheritance of the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, so let's go to application. We have two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 127. 
helps us understand that God has a purpose from before the foundation of the world and he works everything according to his own time we can't hurry him up we we can certainly pray for his will to be fulfilled and in fact we're told to do that in in numerous ways we can pray for all the blessings that he has promised to come and we should but at the same time they will come in the time that he has purposed for them to come so you look out in the world and you see this or that happening or this or that going on and it's it's been that way and we're told it's going to continue to be that way but when God's time comes then there will be no hindering or helping what God has purposed to do number two understanding Psalm 127 does help us understand that we do rest in him there's a there's a great relief that comes when we really understand and embrace the sovereignty of God. You know what? You don't have to save the world. You don't have to build the kingdom. You don't have to set everything under the sun right. And the truth is, of course, you can't do any of that. Even if you try with all of your might, you can't accomplish those things. Yes, there are commands for us to keep... Yes, there are are things for us to do. But at the end of the day, he says, it's vain to rise up early and to to sit up late worrying and and fretting and and trying to make this happen or or that happen or or what have you. No, we, we, we have rest. He's God. He's sovereign. We trust in him. We trust in his wisdom and knowledge we trust in his goodness we trust in his faithfulness we trust in his mercy and his grace uh we we trust in him and we rest in him we do what we are commanded to do and we leave it in his hands